0: All right, so Jonah chapter four. We only have this week and next week uh, to go in the book of Jonah. It's been a good series, has it not? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say that because that sounds a bit selfish. It's been a good book, hasn't it? Jonah, though I didn't write it. It's here. Yep. Jonah's been a great book. Uh, we've learned much. And if you're just here for your first round, you're really coming in uh, at quite you know the, the the end of the tale. But the reality is that Uh, Jonah is a book that that finds itself in the prophetical writings of the Old Testament. It happened. It's history. It's true. uh, But it's quite different to other prophetical books. You might read Isaiah or or, uh, uh, Ezekiel or Daniel. And what those are, uh, a little bit of history, a little bit of story, and mostly just the oracles, the sermons, the proclamations of the prophets. When we come to Jonah, we have very little. It hardly makes a paragraph of what Jonah says. And mostly it is just a story. But it's a story given by God to us, even hundreds of years before Christ, to show, this, uh, to show something that would become a much more full and much more uh, uh, whole-bodied in the new covenant. And that is the, the ingrafting and the in-bringing of the Gentiles in large numbers into the covenant of God. We've been going over this, the first few sermons, sort of touched on this even more, but the whole purpose that God had in, in His choosing of Abraham, the whole reason that God Yahweh, had chosen and created this nation, Israel, was so that they might be the, the starting point to him spreading and sending his kingdom over all nations. And where there was so much failure on Israel's part, there are still these inklings. Still these, these clues that we get, like from the book of Jonah, that God is, despite Israel's sin, and in fact, through Israel's sin, because he's sovereign and can do that, he's going to achieve his purpose of worldwide kingdom of Christ establishment in the world, in time history. That's our conviction here at Hope. That's our joy. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we engage in short-term missions, because we believe God is active. Jesus will win his mission and in bringing in souls from the four corners of of the earth. So when we come to chapter four here, and what happened last week was a glorious, miraculous Sovereign work of God, where 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh, at that point somewhat the capital of the ancient uh, nation of Assyria, that Ninevite city got saved. They repented at the short rebuking word of Jonah of warning them, 40 days, God will destroy Nineveh. And these people who were so superstitious and were looking around them in the world and were aware of the downfalls of their own nation, they threw themselves on the mercy of Jonah's God. And Jesus' own testimony says that these people of this generation of Jonah in Nineveh will be in heaven with us. That's glorious. But we, uh, what, what we would think then is he just preaches this shallow, short sermon and everyone from the king to the servants, even the cattle, start repenting. They're covered in ash. They're, they're not to take food or water. They're fasting for God to hear their repentance. Verse 9 of chapter 3 says, Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10 then says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the grace, the mercy, and salvation of God coming through judgment at the words... Of this prophet, and you might think, I mean, how, how would you be if you got sent to an enemy nation of yours and God was saying, I'm going to be merciful to them? And of course, going in the background of Jonah, we'll see this soon is that he knew if Nineveh survives, they'll come and kill the Israelites, my own people. He knew that he, he, he knew that God was going to pour out grace on the Ninevites and he wouldn't do it on his own people, the Jews. But how would you be if you got sent to a nation? Thousands of miles away. A lot of it was on foot. On the way, you got swallowed by a fish, spat up on a beach. You're alone in a foreign nation. You preach a one, uh, you evangelize for one day, just a short public sermon, and 120,000 people get saved. What would you do? I, I, I was thinking through this. I, I would at least try and set up some kind of mission hub in the middle of the city so that people, maybe I'll take the heads and all the teachers of the religion why they're converted to then teach them the main tenets of Christianity, do, do a short-term uh, uh, Bible overview, teach them basics of theology. That's, that's what our missionary, Blake, over in Southeast Asia does. right? He takes pastors, and and trains them to be leaders in these quick, intensive weeks so that they can go back to their farms and whatnot. And then he goes and visits them. I thought, surely, surely that would be what we would want to do. I want to show you what Jonah did and what Jonah said. Chapter four of Jonah, as we said a few weeks ago, every chapter of Jonah starts with a surprise. Chapter one, the word of God came to a prophet and he runs away. And then he gets thrown to the belly of a fish. Chapter two, though, he's still alive and he's praying. That was a surprise. Chapter three, he goes and has revival. That was a surprise. And chapter four, what's coming next? Something glorious. Listen to this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. One of the old translations I read was, this was disgusting to Jonah. And he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, oh, Lord Is not this what I said when I was yet back in my country? That this is why I made haste and fled to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? How are you going today, Jonah? You're, You're having a day. How are you? You think this is appropriate language? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth or a tent for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. May the Lord bless this to us as we we reflect upon it. Here's Jonah's response. Everybody repents because he tells them, 40 days time, Yahweh's going to crush you all. Their response was repentance, revival, regeneration, and conversion. And they stop their sin and their evil, and God hears them and relents from the disaster. But Jonah's just not too sure. He's still with crossed fingers, marches like a little kid throwing a tantrum out of the city, sets up camp up on a hill where he would have a great view to watch Nineveh go down Sodom and Gomorrah style. He's ready for a Ninevite barbecue. He's sitting there thinking, I know they repented. I know God's gracious, but I'm going to sit out to the east of the city and look down and just count down the days because who knows? Maybe God really is like I would love him to be, and he will destroy Nineveh. That's Jonah's response. He is the most unlikely candidate for God to bring such widespread and glorious revival, and yet God uses him. I'm going to say at the outset, like I said in chapter one, don't read this book and think that the main character is your example. Don't do that. That's bad. That's a bad way to do the Bible when we're reading Jonah. This man is filled with sin. He's filled with so much resistance to what God is doing. And I want to focus on a few things for him and for us that become resistances to revival, become resistance to God being pleased to use us in the mission that he has sent his son and now his church to accomplish in the world. I want to point you towards uh, verse 2 verse 1 and 2, where we see that Jonah, number one, his reason for resistance to this is his incomplete theology. His incomplete theology. You'll you'll read here, he's about to quote an Old Testament reference about God. He he knows his Bible. He's got it memorized. He says it correctly. He's got good theology. He just has incomplete theology. He's what we've called a cave-stage Calvinist. Here's what it says. He was so angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, this is what I said when I was in my country, right? This is what he's saying to God. I told you this is why I ran away and didn't want to come because I know you're so gracious. He says, For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a quotation from Exodus 34 when God reveals himself to Moses at the beginning of the Israelite nation's covenant and ceremonial laws. And he adds a little phrase here, "and relenting from disaster. That's not from Exodus 34. But he knows that that's God. What, what Jonah has here is that he knows God. He knows about God. He's got a good theology, but he doesn't know God's heart. And therefore, he's, he's surprised, resistant, and averse to the mission of God among the nations. That can be us. Well, we know a lot about God. We know correct tenets, We've got those five points and these five solas and these things memorized and great books on our shelves. But where that fails to lead us to the, our fulfillment of and our part to play in the mission of God, We do not yet have complete theology. Any point of systematic theology, which we just love here, we go through the confession of faith in the mornings, it is so important for Christians to have a robust, well-learned and taught systematic theology. You don't know what that is? Come talk later. I'll advise you on some books. But, but every single point of our systematic theology relates some ways longer than others, some more complicated than others, but every page of our theology textbooks land or lead to, in conclusion, the mission of God. The Great Commission is binding on every Christian. It is, if we have theology that, that draws us away from the mission that gives us an excuse to not engage in the mission, then we have a theology to hide behind like the Jews did. We have a reason to to build up more unnecessary parts of our religion, all of these accessories like the Jews did. That in Jesus' day, he came to the temple and where there was supposed to be an enormous court at the front of the temple where Gentiles could come and worship, the Jews in all of their tremendous theology and illegitimate mission had set up where there was no Gentiles worshipping, they set up a shop and a money change section. This is what the church does. David Livingston used to say, he was that missionary that we spoke about last week, went from Scotland, uneducated little boy, became a doctor and a missionary, went to Africa and pioneered the way up into the mid of Africa. And everywhere he went, he liberated slaves and brought justice to them, preached the gospel, stopped slave trading, set up missionaries, uh, missionary agencies. It was glorious. But he used to say, I want to go where no man has preached Christ before. I always want to break new ground. That's my desire. But, but he used to say, of churches back home in England and Scotland, he would say the best diet or the best solution for a sick church is to put it on a missionary diet. Send its best men out to the field Send its money away from this little hub and you'll see it become more healthy. A lot, a lot more stringent on, 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 its, on its resources and its finances. But you get it sending and it is forced to get into action. Everyone's forced to take up the rope and be praying and to everybody start doing their bit that they didn't need to do before. We've, we've seen that in the life of, of our church. And so it was from the church in Antioch in Acts 13 when when the Spirit spoke to them during prayer and fasting and told them, "Um, you need to send people, it's going to be Paul and it's going to be Barnabas. They're best guys. That's when you stop the prayer meeting, say we're getting illegitimate messages from the Lord, we just need to stop Paul, Go, go prepare your sermon for next Sunday. You don't want to get rid of Paul. But they were obedient. They sent and they were all the more gloriously healthy. Well, this is Jonah. He had a good theology, but he was hiding behind it. We cannot be about God's glory, friends, if our prayers, our givings, our goings are not to the nations. If our theology does not land with and therefore Christ will be known among the nations, then we have an incomplete theology. We, we fail to realize that as, as the Bible comes to this close, as, as, it, as it culminates in this book of Revelation, in this glorious uh, 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 book about Jesus, it says in chapter 11, verse 15, that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, imagine this. Imagine heavenly choirs and crowds screaming down towards John and this angel with a huge trumpet. And in this Booming, bellowing voice they cry. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and and, and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11.15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of Christ. That is where all of our theology points. Well, we'll keep going. I think the, the second thing that, that is uh, a resistance here in Jonah that verse one causes him in verse 1 to be so displeased, exceedingly, and angry, poor little Jonah, is his unwillingness, his unwillingness to be worked in. He was willing, as he was back in Israel, having this glorious, flourishing uh, uh, career, he was willing to be worked through. What becomes evident by hardship is that he was unwilling to be worked in. He did not want God to work on him. He just wanted God to use him for glorious things. <clears throat> he despite you know you you remember back. What about chapter two? Did he get swallowed by a fish, pray this prayer of repentance, and then come out the other side all the more obedient and God-loving and other people focused? Didn't that happen? Yeah, but he's like you. He's like me. We have to learn lessons over and over again. Don't try and tell me that your besetting sin was done because you prayed once. Right? Here's Jonah, just like you and me, needing to be taught a lesson again. He he learned not to be so self-centered back in chapter 2. And yet here he is doing it all over again. What I want to read to you is this this section from the revival. I, I've I've been telling you every week. I want to read to you sections from uh, different missionary biographies and tales throughout history. And, and my aim in this is also that you would pick up some of these, pick up some of these books, and you would get reading and start devouring and cutting your teeth on on such inspiring stories as we've covered, like Adoniram Judson in Burma, William Carey in India, David Livingstone in Africa, and others. This one is a collection of stories about the revival that came in recent century in Indonesia, and as. Jonah here it seems to be happy for God to use him, but he doesn't want himself to have to repent and change. I want to read to you the story about one pastor Gideon. The writer says, he was an extremely and hum- simple, come on. he was an extremely simple and humble man. I've met no other man whose humility has impressed me so much. He was a pastor on the island of Rote, the little section in Indonesia which is situated just south of Timor and nearest to Australia than any other part of the Indonesian archipelago. He's almost in heaven. A few miles south, he starts hitting the glory land. On account of the great shortage of pastors, listen to this, on account of great shortage of pastors in the area over the last few years, Gideon himself has had to care for the total of 30 different congregations. 30 different churches. One pastor actually, on another island, has had to look after 48 groups of churches. In 1966, one pack, Elias, he went with a team to Rhode Island to hold a mission there. So this is long before, back when when, uh, Mr. Gideon had only a few churches, right? It says it was the first time that he and Pastor Gideon had met this evangelist, Pack Elias, and Mr. Gideon. Knowing that Gideon had warned all of his congregations to avoid the coming evangelistic campaign, Mr. Elias asked Pastor Gideon, Do you belong to Jesus? At which point the reply came, I've studied theology and passed my exams. It's not the answer to the question, was it? Do you belong to Jesus? This question rung in his ears, and after their conversation, Pastor Gideon's heart was in a turmoil. As the days went by, he saw numerous people who were being converted, the sick healed, and the possessed were being freed, and drunkards were being delivered from their alcoholism. The churches began to fill up, despite the fact that their pastor stood to the side disapprovingly. Gideon watched. As the power of the Holy Spirit descended upon his fellow islanders, but he himself was not touched. This is what Pastor Gideon would come to say to Pack Elias in months afterwards. He said, I've been in the ministry for seven years and I've never seen a single person converted as a result of my work. Yet, during one campaign under your ministry, hundreds are converted. I think I know why. I've I've never really repented for myself and received the forgiveness of my sins. And I've certainly never been born again in the way that you describe. I'm going to resign. I cannot go on like this. But as the only man of learning in the area, Pacolias was able to convince him, don't end your ministry, just restart it afresh with the Holy Spirit. And so he, he, he convinced Mr. Gideon to do so. He says... When Gideon returned to the island after a year of learning, he was a changed man who stood in the pulpit to preach. His messages now began to have an effect. The Holy Spirit used his subsequent ministry then. In this way, a man whose heart had been broken was given authority. An authority to prophesy and the authority to heal. Everything though, right, we, we squirm at that a bit. Everything though, took place quietly. It was neither noise or sensationalism, unlike the ghastly background music which often accompanies extremists. Gideon can fix his gaze on a man with unforgiven sin in his life and tell him immediately what that problem in his life is. It's a nightmare of a pastor. I've got that too. So... (laughs) Later on, he went to another pastor's conference and came back again. After touring the island of Timor, Gideon returned to his own small island of Rote. He realized that his first task was to evangelize the whole island, and for a year, he continued to visit one congregation after another, preaching the gospel wherever he went. During this time, the Lord confirmed his ministry in an unthinkable and unmistakable way. Over a 1,000 people were brought to Christ in this first year following his conversion. Large prayer groups began to spring up, which became the backbone of his ministry. At one point, he was relying on 600 Christians, praying daily for the island and his congregations. At the end of this year, a wave of revival broke out on route. No, not that thousands of people saved. 1,000 people saved in the first year. Then the wave broke forth. Pastor Gideon walked to church. He would find crowds of natives waiting outside, unable to get into the building. They would listen to his sermon thoroughly and through the open windows in the fields. The only difficulty he found, and it's got uh, uh, those things around the word difficulty. The only difficulty he found was that sometimes the people would not allow him to stop preaching. And they would have him continue from the morning when he preached until eleven or twelve o'clock at night. That's what you get for telling everybody our sins, pastor. That, that's that's their get back at him. You're not going to get a sit down. That's a pastor's dream. <clears throat> I've tried that. You don't let me. You give me the looks. I stop. Whatever he felt like coming to an end, the people would cry out, "Go on, go on!" And such was the hunger for the word of God that gripped. The natives listen to this story there was one time when pastor gideon was unable to stand the searing tropical heat of the day and he said to this overcrowded church it's too hot i cannot go on however the congregation soon found a solution we must pray for rain so that the air will be cooler so the sermon was halted momentarily And and many of the natives then began to pray for rain. As a result, the Lord, who had been so gracious in pouring out his spirit, sent also rain. In response, therefore, to his children's prayers, the Lord sent both the water of life and the water of refreshing rain. What a glorious tale that is in the dark corners of Indonesia. This is what happens. When a man, can you imagine the eternal ramifications? Had Pastor Gideon not had the spirit-wrought humility to walk up to Eli, a pack of lice and just say that day, I don't know the forgiving grace of Jesus. If he had just kept himself back in his pride and his theology and his learning and his old traditional ways, imagine what would have happened. Well, like, unlike Jonah... God used Gideon through his repentance. We need to realize that those who God will do a deep work through, and this is to all young people especially, those who who have great many years ahead of you and you want to be used by the Lord, and I know that you do. Don't settle to just know about God, but to have a great effect and productivity on this world you need to understand that he, God will not work through you unless by His Spirit He also works in you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 uses this example. The Apostle Paul says, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are used for honorable use and some for dishonorable Therefore, Now, I, I believe in this section, he is not speaking of those who will be condemned on the last day and saved on the last day. He's speaking about the house of the Lord. In the house of Christ, there are those who will be used dishonorably and meagerly and those who are used honorably and greatly. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Therefore, free youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you seek to be used, first have the humility to bring your own sin to God that you would be worked on. And then God has you ready and fit a holy vessel set apart like in the Old Testament sacrificial and temple system that you would be purified, then able to be used for holy service. This was what Pastor Gideon found, may it be also among us. Lastly, we see here that the third thing that, was, that uh, would have been playing on Jonah and so often does among us that plays uh, its part in resistance revival, here and overseas, is a love of fame, a love of glory, and a love of having our names known. You must know, as God would say over and over again, he does not, as he would say through the prophets, God does not give his glory to anybody else. He does not share his glory. He will make you bring things about in uh, salvation history, so that no one can ever look to whether it's Pastor Gideon's story, Adoniram Judson's story, David Livingston's life, no one will ever be able to look to these things and say, do you see, it was wrought by human activity. Do you see, it was human strength that brought that about. God is careful and jealous for his own glory, making sure it's always worked out in such a way that he is the only one who could have done it. Jonah, however, loved the glory, the name, the fame that he had back in the days of of riches back in Israel, where he was that prophet of blessing that everybody loved. Back in that day, he would have been treated like a politician. He would have had had a guest house. He would have been well fed, well protected, and well sought after. But here, his name, his reputation is lost. He's one man sent off through the desert via a belly, covered in vomit to go into this nation of enemies. We will never be used, friends, for the glory of God if we are seeking our own glory. If our prayers for salvation or our prayers to be used always have truncated on them, therefore I might be known as, as, as one who's a cut above all the other ordinary Christians. I want to be one whose name is written down in the, in the stories that generations in the, in the future will tell. I want to be the one, the gals, the guys they look to and are impressed with. If that is your heart, then you are a resistance to revival here and among the nations. That desire must be killed. Jesus said in the book of John, actually John writing about what was happening between Jesus and his enemies, His detractors, the Jews, it says, they loved the glory that came from man, therefore they could not believe Christ. If we stand in God's way, that um, unstoppable force of God's desire to glorify himself will wipe us clean off the map. I have a story here that I want to read to you. We have just touched on this man's life. His name was Robert Murray McShane. He was, a again, one from the glory lands. He was Scottish. He was a man who who ministered in Dundee, this little town in Scotland. He was a a pastor, and he he there, uh, I'm just going to read parts of his biography that was written about him back in the 1800s. Though engaged night and day with his flock at St. Peter's, and he was a hard-working pastor. He worked so hard, and we're going to see soon, he was sick. He didn't live past his 30th birthday. So here it is. He, He was engaged night and day with his flock in St. Peter's. Mr. McShane ever cherished a missionary spirit, however. While he was so busy with his church, he still loved the idea of going on missions. He would say, this home of mine hardens me for a foreign land. The spirit he sought to kindle yet more and more was missionary, Was with missionary stories that he would use for his own reading and often he would read to his people in midweek prayer meetings. The necessities both of his own parish, that is his church, and the world at large lay heavy on his soul. And when an opportunity of evangelizing occurred, there was none in Scotland more ready to embrace it. Another motive... For his incessant activity was the decided impression in his heart and mind that his career would be short. As we said, McShane was a sick, frail man. He says, my my sickly frame makes me feel every day that my time will be very short. And he was therefore in some measure prepared when in the midst of his laborious duties in Scotland, he was compelled to stop, Stand still and see what the Lord would do. You see, what happened was he became so sick. His doctor back then, sort of the, the medicine of the day, they're, 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 uh, it's always a bit funny. Uh, their rec- uh, recommendation was if you're sick and you're horrible in your homeland, probably you just need to go for a walk. And that doesn't work, then go somewhere sunny and then go for a walk or something. Have some herbal tea. But that's sort of the extent of it. And so he was so sick that he was told, you need to go to the Middle East. You need to go out where it's warmer. You need to go spend some time among the medical people there and just breathe some fresh air, get some sand between your toes. You need to leave Scotland. It's killing you. And he was very, uh, uh, and, and so as he, he went, you might think if, if and he was going to be gone for years. So you might think, what would a pastor, this leader who so many people spoke so highly of, What would be his response if he got told, you have to stop preaching, stop pastoring, go overseas? Well, what was true of McShane was this. It says, he was very well aware of how easily his flock began to idolize the shepherd and how prone the shepherd himself was to feel somewhat pleased with this sinful partiality of his people. And to be uplifted by his success, he would say, I sometimes think, in a letter that he wrote, that a great blessing may come to my people if I were to leave as a humble man. Often God does not bless us when we are in the midst of our labors, lest we should say, my hand and my eloquence have done it. He removes us into silence and then pours down a blessing so that there is no room to receive it so that all that see it cry out and say, it is the Lord who has done this. That was his conviction. So he willingly went to go and get better. He went to the Middle East, and this was fulfilling in his own heart both desires, that he would be apart from his people, that God would bless them with revival. Don't get any ideas. I'm not moving. And, and, and then also fulfilling his heart this desire to go to the nations. He would always wanted to preach the gospel in Israel. And so, as he went, <clears throat> the rest of the notes are in a, a different section here. It's quite a chunky book. It's amazing. I recommend you get it. The diary of um, uh, the biography of Mr. Mc, uh, McShane. Man, I'm not good today. <clears throat> but while, while he was gone, an assistant came in, a young buck, unpracticed in the, in the ministry, a very young man called Mr. C.W. Burns. He had been honored of God to open the floodgate at Dundee, as well as in Kilsyth. Here's the story. He goes off. McShane goes to uh, Judah, uh, sorry, to Israel, and there he's preaching. He's labouring very weakly. He's still getting better, but meanwhile, the little young man that he brought in to look after his congregation and trusted that God would use was God's instrument to bring widespread revival. He said this when he returned back to his homeland. He said, it was like a pent-up flood breaking forth. Tears were streaming from the eyes of many, and some fell on the ground groaning and weeping and crying for mercy. Onward from that evening, meetings were held every day for many weeks. Meetings were held for, many, for every day for many weeks. And the extraordinary nature of the work justified and called for these extraordinary services. The whole town was moved. Many believers doubted at the genuine nature of this work. The The ungodly raged, but the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Instances occurred where whole families were affected to Christ at once all of this in answer to the prayer of McShane to leave. What a humble, humble man. He would say later as he takes back over from C.W. Burns, sorry, W.C. Burns, and he's ministering there, he, he writes in his journal and he says, a very poor night indeed this evening at church, for only 12 souls came forward to receive salvation. Just 12. Just breaking a dozen, and that's a depressing night in the life of McShane because God had worked so mightily through his young minister, W.C. Uh, Burns. Missions, and here's what, what we see in the life of Jonah, in the life of every other man who we've seen do this in history. Missions is how you lose or your self-aggrandizing reputation. Because you come up out of your culture, from your peers, everybody who thinks mightily of you, the language you speak, the culture you grew up in, you're uprooted from here, and you go to a people who don't know your story, don't think you're impressive, you're some peddler of faraway myths, and we don't want to listen to you, and they persecute, and they press against you, and so it is that men and women who want to be used by God in revival, here and abroad, must be willing to kill, to crucify that self-vain, glorious hunger for reputation. Jonah did not. And yet, this is the exception. I'm telling you, don't look at him as an example. Yet, God was pleased to use him. And he does so as a rebuke to us. I want to ask you tonight, as we close out, You've got an option. As you read the book of Jonah, as he's angry and resistant to do such work and pray for such work among the nations, especially Assyria, you and I have an option. We can either say, I'm going to be like Jonah, to which everybody says, no thanks, I know you've made him out to look like an idiot, we're not going to do that. But the only other option is to be constantly on your knees before God for the nations. The only other option is to pray regularly whether God would send you to a faraway land with the gospel of Jesus Christ in your mouth. We actually don't get to choose. We either are Jonah or we are of a missionary spirit. Now, some will remain with giving and with prayer and support and others will need to uproot and go. Next week, we're going to look at sufferings as it relates to, missions, and we'll see God's unique use of this in in the mission of God. But this week, I, I want us to look at Jonah and decide, not just that I don't want to seem so obviously foolish, but I want to genuinely be used in the way that Jonah was, but not like Jonah is. Let's ask ourselves these questions. As we look back on these points, have you an incomplete theology? Do you enjoy reading, and you love learning, and you love the footnotes, but you don't do anything? You don't see all of this as a drive towards sharing of the gospel. You don't, as you read of the glorious treasures that are in Jesus Christ. Not an ounce of your heart breaks for those who don't know him. The youth that our our church reaches out to that, that don't know the glories of living with Christ the neighbors on your street who who live outside of the the great uh, glory that comes by knowing your sins are forgiven, and those nations who in the millions and billions stand without even an echo of the gospel in their streets. Does your theology drive you to a heart of missions? Secondly, have you been resistant to God's work in you? This comes to the young, the teenagers. This comes to the old. Have you been like Pastor Gideon before his own revival experience? Unwilling to be so humiliated. Unwilling to be humbled and say, though I've been in church however many decades, though I've told people I got saved this many years ago, I realize my sins are unrepented of. They continue in my life. My sins are unforgiven. The the weight of their guilt is on me every day. And while I want to do these things in the church, I realize that God has not worked in me. If that's you, then you need to come to the point of repentance, a point that only God's sovereign spirit can bring. You are as unable to bring yourself to revival and repentance as the Ninevites were. But the God who spoke and revived 120,000 can bring you to belief in Christ. Pray, cry out to God that you would be worked in. And if you are a Christian, then, then cry out to the Lord that he would destroy these besetting sins of yours that hold you back from confidently proclaiming. These sins that keep you from being able to give your life for the gospel. Ask the Lord to kill them that he would work in you so he can work through you. Lastly, have you crucified the man or the woman within you that loves glory? Pride is not just the original sin. It lies at the base of every single sin. God will not share his glory with another. He will not use those who seek his glory. We will not get to go on a plunder for the Lord and like Achan of the Old Testament, keep some for ourselves. It's all to the glory of God. Have you you brought your own accomplishments to the Lord in humility? Have you brought your downfalls to the Lord in humility? Have you asked God to give you a mind of yourself that is painfully true? Do not consider, Paul would write later in the New Testament, do not consider yourself higher than you ought. That is a command that meets every one of us this evening. And friends, if, if we are to be utilized for revival and uh, utilized here and utilized beyond the seas, then we must realize it will cost us everything. The way we do life, the way we do ministry, the way we spend our money, the way we enjoy our family, every single part of our lives will be touched. All for the ultimate betterment, but it will be painful. Friends, the, the, the assurance we have to have is that every second, every dollar... Every sacrifice will be worth it until we hear proclaimed from heaven the kingdoms of this world are now the kingdoms of Christ. That is our conviction. Jesus, unlike Jonah, let's wrap up here. Jesus, unlike Jonah, he was a willing preacher. He went out of the love of his own heart. He came from heaven, not just from Israel. He stood off a throne, not just a prophetic ministry. He had no sin, unlike Jonah. He came perfect and unstained by sin. He came and yet he suffered suffering he did not deserve. Jonah deserved every bit of suffering he got and more. Jesus came and he loved his enemies. Jonah went yet despised them. Jesus died that they may live. Jonah wanted to die because God let them live. Jesus was resurrected to give new life to those who believe in him. Any and everyone here who does not know the resurrection life of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, and walking with him, it is on offer today because Jesus did not stay death after dying for your sins, but was risen in glory. He now sits at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven to grant forgiveness to any that believe on him in faith. Jesus now sends all of his people, us, for the glory of God among the nations. Let's pray over this word as it finds its place in our heart. Father God, we praise you for the stories of those who have gone before us in bygone generations who carried the torch to those dark places of the earth, to the ends of the earth, as you said, as you were on earth, that they would go through Jerusalem and Judea and Sumeria and then to the far-reaching corners of the earth. And Lord, we have seen your servants do that by your sovereign spirit's sending. And God, we see how it all works out to give no one any glory but you. And we pray that, Lord. We pray that you would be merciful and gracious to us, that you would forgive our sins, even those ones we have kept long hidden and unrepented of. We pray, Lord, that you would save us, though we are sinners sitting here tonight not believing in Christ. Would you save them, bring them to themselves, bring them to the end of themselves, though they rely on their own good works, their own Christian doings, their own church goings. Lord, send that all away and bring them only to believe in Christ. But then, Lord, work in us to kill our, 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 our appetite for glory and give to us an appetite for service. No matter what we receive, if you receive glory, we will be satisfied. God, please give us this missionary heart that starts at home, starts in our houses and our streets and, and local church ministry, but pours out, Lord, to those who have not even heard the name of Christ preached to them. May you raise up from even this group those who would be able to, for decades to come, look back on this humble little sermon from Jonah 4 and say, that is the reason I'm a missionary. Please, God, use us as you used McShane and Gideon and hundreds who have gone before us. May you repent, may you bring us to repentance, glorify your son through our service and our worship. And we pray all these things in his glorious, uh, reigning and strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.